Welcome, Michael Cheney from Dartmouth. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor Latinx Videocast. We're going to get to talk about lots of things, including your sort of origin story and getting into Great. comics. Great. Very happy to be here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so, for having me. Yes, thank you. Um, so let's um, talk about... Um, comics and how you got into comics okay so you've done like you've got your sort of uh you've trained as a literary scholar you do work in 19th century kind of fugitive narratives african-american literature you're known for that and of course this great stuff in comics that you've been doing now for a while so how did you let's hear like how did michael cheney get into comics well, so the, the real uh, secret, every origin story has to be a secret, right? You know, the secret is I'm that kid who was uh, reading comic books when I should have been reading other things. Uh, and the reason why I was reading comic books, it was the X-Men uh, that I was addicted to. The Uncanny X-Men is written by Chris Claremont, uh, a major series of the 1980s, and it just captivated my attention as an early reader, uh, an early appreciator of stories and narratives and characters. Uh, you know, um, I was absolutely transfixed. And the reason was, on the one hand, the stories were being presented as partly pictorial. So the, the words in the writing didn't bother me. And, th and that was an issue because uh, I grew up, uh, my, my early life, I was born in Akron, and uh, I, I was growing up with my brother, uh, with uh, two people I called my Oma and Opa. And my Oma is my, my biological grandmother, uh, but my Opa was her husband at the time. I didn't know in Akron until I was five that uh, um, the, the woman who was coming to make sure we were okay, who's my mother, who's very brown skinned and so was my brother, was that way because we we're mixed race and, and her father's uh, an African-American who was living in Cleveland Heights at the time. So uh, at the age of five, I'm reunited with my mother and her, her uh, stepfather, who's the person I grew up with calling dad, who's also African-American. So uh, uh, I'm the lightest skinned person in a mixed race family. Uh, so the appeal of the X-Men, which is a group of people who literally function as a family, and they're all from different places, and they look different and they talk different, was there, there was a great appeal in that to me because here was a family that didn't all look the same, but they were still a family. And that was, a, that was like a genetic code for reading dialectically and reading oppositionally that I was uh, hooked into, hardwired to appreciate from a very young age. Uh, so I was really interested in the X-Men because it was a pictorial representation of a family not predicated on optical resemblance. Wow, what a, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm trying to get my head around your, your, your story, your it's origin. Unique, yeah, it's, it's unique. And, and I, it, I came to find out that a lot of mixed race people were living in my hometown of Cleveland Heights. So what makes things even more confusing for me is by the time I'm in junior high and things like that, I'm not the only person uh, who is uh, a part of a very mixed race family. And by that, I mean, People are speaking different languages and uh, uh, people look like they're, you know, they, they range the gamut of uh, skin tone. Uh, so, again, the idea that a family is presumed 
to be made up of members who all look exactly the same because they're the same skin tone. I didn't like that, you know? And so even, even though my brother is my full blooded brother, for instance, when people would say, is that your real brother? That, that made me a critic of optics based on visible proof from a very, as an infant, <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I was not buying into optic proofs as an infant. Wow. Okay. I love that. I think that optic proofs could be with quotations, maybe the title of um, one of your new books. Uh, Uh, So um, tell me like why then, uh, of course I understand like this deep kind of drive to want to systematize and understand and enrich your understanding and also our understanding and your students. So why yeah, just more globally, why yeah. the path of research and writing and teaching about comics? Yeah, okay, so that's a, that's a separate question. I mean, I think the first question is why are we passionate about the things we love? And that oh, has yeah, a yeah, let's deep hear it. connection to, you know, my, my youth and childhood. Now, now, this, now this other question, how, did, how do I professionally get into comics? Uh, that, that comes from being very much interested in theory and uh, as a literature scholar, I, I suppose um, in the 80s, I could understand reading Jane Austen and the Brontes and thinking, here's a canon. Uh, this is a canon from a long time ago. But I also understand that this is not necessarily uh, uh, required reading of anyone to be considered smart. This is just maybe an effect of an outdated now class structure. Uh, but but there are some uses to literature. Uh, it, literature is an, is an entryway for thinking about culture and how culture and expression and communication and things like the real life lived stories of people can be meaningful uh, beyond their own stories. Uh, so I, I was interested in literature because I was interested in all that other stuff. You know, I wasn't necessarily interested in literature because I like to read the Brontes, even though I did, I'm that weird person too. Uh, uh, but I, I see it as an entryway for thinking about culture, for thinking about thinking and how we understand uh, each other in our lives. This involves metaphor and language and symbols and stories. Uh, and I thought that comics uh, were getting at the heart of a lot of the things I really wanted to be studying. Uh, they were low culture, so they were always putting on the shelf everything having to do with aristocratic cultural reproduction. Uh, all of that was uh, uh, under under attack most of the time. And uh, comics were also satirical. And uh, humor involves um, complexities of irony and meaning and uh, roundabouts of intention that I think I find in the most uh, um, uh, complex poetry. Um, the other thing I love about comics, other than that it's global and it's global popular culture, uh, and that it's so patently political, is that it has to function according to a constant visual abbreviation of human experience. Mm. It's a language that cross, uh, crosses generation and, and I think, uh, uh, literacy. Um, it's, it can cross symbolic domains, and something with that much power uh, is, is uh, a medium I wanted to study and still do. Well, beautifully put. Um, so, yeah, what... I mean, in a way, you've kind of gotten to this, but what's the kind of worldview or the research program if you were going to do an elevator pitch version of the Michael Cheney kind of approach? Yeah, I, I'm, I would say that uh, uh, 
my title of this most recent book, um, Reading Lessons and Seeing, it, it, it attempts to encapsulate that, that agenda for me. It's that I believe that comics are curricular. I believe that they're pedagogical, that they're teaching us all the time, not only how we ordinarily see, but also how we can see extraordinarily, how we can see things we don't normally see. And I just want to slow down the curriculum, if you will, of a lot of uh, some of the most interesting and uh, uh, pedagogically rich graphic narratives out there and um, just sort of um, speak out loud my own sense of being a pupil to the lessons that they are teaching on every page. Uh, so my agenda is to just slow down the always automatic and dangerously automatic experience of seeing and knowing what you see um, so that you can become uh, a critical um, in, engager with the optic world rather than just an automatic receiver of its truths. Right. And comics are so, I mean, the form of comics is so appropriate for that slowdown, right? Because the page we're oh, yeah. allowed to do that. It invites oh, yeah. us to do that. Right. Oh Yes. And I guess I should also say, uh, before I, I sound a little bit too much like I'm just a regular cultural historian or something like that, I am also interested in the philosophical and phenomenological dimensions of this medium in the sense that it, it's stimulating experiences of time and experiences of time in space uh, that are really interesting to examine against the backdrop of Western philosophy and its engagement with issues of time and time space as well. Autobiography and comics, Michael. Yes. Tell well, us about, yeah. My, my dissertation uh, advisor was, uh, uh, one of my dissertation advisors was an American studies um, scholar, uh, Eva Chernyovsky. Uh, hmm. The other was a scholar of autobiography, uh, uh, and uh, Eakin. And Eakin's work focuses on American autobiography in particular. And at that, at the time that I was uh, coming up in graduate school, he was writing a book called "How Our Lives Become Stories," and he was very much interested in the interface of uh, uh, cognitive science and. Um, psychological and brain science techniques for mapping the brain and understanding thought as thought uh, is expressed maybe in life narratives. And I was interested in similar questions, but these questions had more to do with uh, 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 graphics in the sense that you've got autobiographical stories that are autobiographical. I'm thinking of Marjane Satrapi's Persepolis or David B's Epileptic where the person is telling you their life story, but the added twist, and I think this is just profound, and I would have long conversations with Professor Eakin about this, what if the autobiographer is also a self-portraitist who in every tiny little panel is not only telling you what happened in their life, but is drawing a little picture of themselves telling you what happened in their life? Because the little picture of the self telling you about the self is so different from the narratorial printed eye that you get in a standard print autobiography. And, and I think it, it's so different that it actually troubles the genre category of autobiography altogether. That in these moments we are, we are doing the necessary work of picturing, picturing ourselves as a fiction 
in order to render ourselves intelligible as autobiographical subjects. Wow. So there's a kind of, uh, I mean, if we, not to get too complicated, there's always already a kind of meta with the comics autobiography. That's right. That, that, uh, the question is, um, uh, a good, a a friend of mine and and an inspiration of my work, John Jennings, who's a a practitioner of Afrofuturism has recently been, um, interested in works uh, having to do with instructing African-American artists on how to draw African-American faces. Uh, this is important because the, the earliest comics and cartooning, uh, is almost, it's almost always done by uh, white artists, almost always white male artists. And the idea of having a face is equivalent to having a mask. Your face is whatever, whatever is the most socially intelligible mask that others can quickly, in an abbreviated way, associate with you or whatever you represent if you were to be a character in a comic or in a comic world. And John Jennings and other artists are moving against this tradition of monoracial representations uh, to reimagine what faces may look like from within particular ethnic cultures, not from without. And the, the interesting thing there is comics almost always presume a radically satirical, cruel other whose position from without is always reducing us to our most laughable uh, masks. And that makes comics very dangerous. It makes them politically sapient. It, it, it also makes them very problematic for telling life stories. If a life is, uh, is assumed to be uh, uh, a true and, and story full of like real choices that we make and the incredible consequences they have for us and others, uh, what difference does it make if that life is being told by a talking animal? Uh, I think this is James Kochalka's move in American Elf to tell real uh, heart-wrenching stories about his daily life, sometimes full of incredible banality, like he's just looking at a flower, but he's drawing it the entire time as though he were an elf, uh, a talking elf. And that just lends uh, a surrealism to the cartoon that that is odd because you know that the stories are, are just everyday stories that all of us have, mm-hmm. uh, being bored on a city bus or something like that. But we're not elves while bored on a city bus, you know. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It gets back to your kind of um, the the sensibility of understanding how comics make or allow us to see things in a new way. Right. That's um, right. So yeah, um, and this sort of leads nicely into the next question, and you know, specifically about reading lessons and seeing. Um, yeah. How maybe you can use this as an example, um, right? Um, talking about the imposter's daughter. Um, well, I think that's, that's one, uh, that's one of the graphic narratives I'm interested in because I think, uh, um, it is like so many others, like Persepolis, uh, uh, Mouse, so many others. It's, it's involved in a kind of Oedipal crisis, uh, uh, telling a story of childhood, but it's really uh, the story of an adult as can be understood through a visual idiom that's associated with childhood. Uh, and, and I think that's important because it, it, it gives autobiographical graphic novels the sensibility of being almost like a, a clinical conversation with uh, one's therapist about, you know, like, so tell me about your father, you know, and, uh, 
And, and here, the, the self-portraitist is able to not only tell about the father, and I think this is the important thing, but is showing and telling. Mm. Not just about the father, but herself in relation to the father. And I think it's not difficult in a, in a uh, page like this to see uh, uh, the repetitions. You, see, you have the father and the daughter in all three of the panels. And I think most, most of comics pages re, uh, present us with an opportunity for narrative. It's not narrative um, transparently. Uh, I have so many students that at the beginning of a class want to talk about how to read a page. Where do we start? Which, which panel comes first? Uh, uh, diverse readers coming from different um, countries and different cultural traditions of different uh, understanding of reading order. And this is very difficult. The page is itself a puzzle. So instead of thinking of the page as a narrative or a story as such, I see it as an opportunity for story. Uh, the other thing that's there is not story. Uh, there are three pictures there in which we've got, uh, let's say, two characters repeated. They're, they're repeated because of certain characteristics. Uh, but when we look at those characteristics in terms of the relationship of the two, and we see the characters as more of a dyad than father and daughter, we see them as a dyad, they're in relation to each other. I think the, the space, the positioning, and the size choices that the artist is making in showing that relation uh, is speaking on a language that's different from the language that's on the page that is telling about the relation. And I think that disconnect, that third story, if you will, not the story in the little box and not just the story of that figure next to that other figure, but the third story of uh, the dyadic relationship and the language that's being shown to us that exceeds the language of text that's the crucial story that these Oedipal, I think, autobiographies are telling in graphic narratives that um, are not being accomplished in non-graphic, exclusively print life stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's extraordinary. Yeah, the way you um, formulate this kind of third space or third language. Um, incognito, what, in a, in a kind of a, I know it's difficult to do this, but in a, a kind of a, summary version what are you i mean this that's an extraordinary work what what's your take on oh, yeah. it? uh you know i there's uh, so let me just pause and say uh before i say anything about it there's a there's a bit of a let's say a a, a sacred necessary caveat that every critic must make uh especially uh when talking about works like this in in front of students and that is to say i am in no way ever um cracking the code of any of these texts when i'm talking about how a page strikes me or how a page is engaging me to think in a certain way this is not the answer to any of the questions of meaning that these texts raise this is this is my uh beginning towards a response for thinking through um, some of these larger questions. Okay, so about Incognito. This is a, a, a work that is, uh, of, let's say, para-history, that's rethinking uh, the history of the 19 teens and 20s, a history lived by people like Walter White, uh, um, original 
um, president of the NAACP, uh, who's a, a fighter against lynching at the time, along with many others, uh, Ida B. Wells and others who are um, outspoken about lynching. And, and the figure uh, who's the journalist who's um, going to the South where lynchings are happening in this uh, retelling of the history is like a superhero. Uh, this person is like a Clark Kent meets Superman, but in, in African-American history. Uh, so right off the bat, the fact that we're doing an alternative history uh, of a very difficult moment in African-American history, uh, and uh, it needs to be said that any attempt to try to put bookends on what we're talking about here as a history, is this a history of violent, unwanted, and in the unjustified state-sanctioned oppression and violence, uh, where's the end uh, of, of, this, uh, uh, of, of this history? You know, I think it's even, it's even controversial to be calling this a history, okay? Mm -hmm. I, 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 but all of this is to just talk around the difficult subject that Incognito is about um, in its telling and showing. As a reader, I noticed that uh, two things happen when Incognito is uh, revisiting a photo archive of lynching. On the one hand, uh, the, 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 the black and white photography itself is translated to a drawing that is also black and white and very busy, very detailed uh, renderings of, of lynching scenes on full pages happen in Incognito. And the consequence of that transliteration from the photographic to the two-dimensional world of drawing is that a puzzle happens, I think, on the page. There's, a, it, it, there's a, a labyrinth that forms. It becomes very difficult for the eye to find the victim at the bottom of the tree. It's, it's almost like a, an awkward Where's Waldo uh, image where you see all kinds of bodies on a page, and it looks like a picnic. Uh, most of the bodies are obviously rendered as, as, as white. You can see that the figures are supposed to indicate uh, white people uh, in space from an, an incredibly aerial view that's taken. And the aerial view is, I think, exaggerated so that it makes it even more difficult to discern who's who in the shot. And I think that's done partly as a way to give us a sense of distance from the difficult subject that we are being shown. Uh, it's also, I think, a nod uh, to um, early cultural phobias about representing difficult traumatic things uh, or representing divinity. You know, the very first cultural prohibitions against representation had to do with anything attempting to simulate divinity or God. Thereafter, representations of pain and misery were seen as uh, uh, deplorable, as, uh, as wicked in some way, irreverent. And I think, I think representations of, of a historical lynching based on historical photographs could be uh, seen as irreverent in the same way. Um, and the, the consciousness, the visual consciousness behind Incognito, which I'm going to say is shared by both artist and writer, mm -hmm. uh, creates a mediation such that we are constantly being elevated away from the scene of lynching, away from it, and almost given reprieve and distance from the scene, uh, while others within the fictional world are brought 
dangerously and terrifically close. Mm -hmm. We are, we are uh, relieved of, of having to get that close. And I, I think uh, in that sense, Incognito is really about the difficulty of, of, uh, of a historical consciousness. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, gosh, this kind of let's move. Let's that. I, it's hard for me to move from that to to kind of animals and animality, but of course they're completely linked. Um, so yes, this work that you've also been doing that's really um, opened and helped kind of grow a space in comic studies. Yes, I I think. Uh... Comics are a fluid and fluent language for abstraction. I think uh, it, uh, that um, the, the zone of the animal is one that always encompasses a kind of boundary of what the human is. The human and something else. Whatever is assumed to be human uh, can be uninterrogated in a comic that's about talking animals. And the comic can seem to be about animal uh, behaviors, but it's always really about the limits of the human, always. And, and so in this regard, I think animal comics are a lot like uh, some of the oldest literary forms known to humanity. They're like fablio, they're like fables. They are always almost about behavior and the distinction between uh, uh, compulsion and let's say choice or deliberation. Uh, you know, the oldest fables are uh, about, let's say, a snake trying to offer animals passage across the creek. And then when the, when the trepidatious frog allows the snake or the crocodile to transport it across the uh, uh, stream and is then about to be eaten by the snake and says, hey, how come you're going to eat me? I thought you were going to take me across the stream. The snake has, says, because I'm a snake, stupid. <laughs> That's what I do. You know? uh, these, are, these, are, these are jokes, and they're not really about animals. They're about the way um, humans sometimes operate within the same very limited ethical constraints as animals are perceived, not naturally, but are perceived by humans to operate within as well. So someone like, so here we have, uh, I mean, <clears throat> just briefly, I don't, um, I know um, there's just so much to talk about here, but with Black Hole, oh. yeah, you have a kind of a hybrid, a hesitation between forms, uh, certainly on the cover um, that I, we've got here. Um, and so what, what is that doing actually? Yeah. Okay. So I think this is, is very important uh, to say at this time. Uh, I've, I've, taught black, I've taught a lot of comics uh, to a lot of college students, and uh, I'm sure you know, uh, it, it, can, it, it can be very interesting sometimes because um, comics seem so prescient. That word, I think, is very uh, descriptive of comics because they were, between symbol systems, they can seem to be talking about the now or the very soon-to-be, the emergent I have to say, uh, at, at Indiana and in Bloomington, when I was a graduate student, I was teaching uh, the Watchmen when 9-11 happened. We were going over, uh, the Watchmen was our first graphic novel uh, of the term, and uh, when the ending happens, and here's the, the devastation in New York City, our students are, uh, my students are reading about this devastation in New York City in a fiction, and it's happening in the world. 
And uh, uh, Alan Moore and other graphic novelists, I think, are, uh, are, are always have one foot in the political anyway. So their work has these resonances. And so back to Black Hole. Black Hole is a book that uh, um, shows its teen characters weirdly undergoing a transformation that seems to be viral or bacterial. Uh, a plague consciousness haunts the world. It merges humans and teens and uh, uh, teen angst and teen sexuality and teen uh, social uh, turmoil narratives uh, with a uh, end of the world plague narrative where these teens are not just becoming other people, but they're, they're, they're being infected by organisms. And uh, um, I, I want to say that that at this time, when uh, we as citizens are, are being hailed by images to understand ourselves in relationship to others through images, maps, where our behavior, staying in our homes, is uh, implied to have direct correlations on the welfare of others. When we are all urged to flatten a curve and then we're shown curves and then we're imagining ourselves in the curve, right? We are the curve that's being flattened. If I, if I transform myself, my, the chaos of my lived life into a blip on a mathematical chart, I'm seeing myself uh, become a data blip and not a person. I'm no longer a human. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not even an animal in that sense, but I think I'm an animal in the philosophical sense of, uh, of losing this lived me, myself kind of experience and having it transformed for others uh, into uh, an object of analysis. Burns, prescient comic book creator. <laughs> um, you have like, like crazy hits on this TEDx. I don't know if you've noticed, but like I, thousands I, I, I of people, it. yeah, people <laughs> obviously love it. So, but in the general big scheme of things, and you've already shared um, some, some of your like incredible insights that I'm sure your students are just um, blown away by. But I also, by the way, I love that you position yourself not as a kind of high priest that's kind of channeling the way, the only way, right? You're... Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, why... Yeah, not at all. Yeah, not at all. I, I, would, never, I would never want to uh, perpetuate such, such nonsense, yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to... Ch I, I, I hope, if anything, I'm channeling uh, uh, the, the curiosity in all of us as readers to want to know uh, what this thing uh, called life or called identity or a self or a culture that we all experience. Uh, and and we, we, we all have the right to describe these complexities. And as a, as a professor and a scholar, I, I feel that my job, my obligation is to just constantly be describing uh, a front door or a vestibule. And I'm, I'm always assuming others are walking through this front door and this vestibule into other, other rooms of the mansion. You know, I'm not the owner or the builder of this mansion. I'm just, I'm kind of the doormat, really. I'm the doormat. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, my 
My sense is that folks that are drawn to comic studies, we all kind of, we're all, you know, nobody has to say it, but we're all kind of door people, right? We, there's nobody saying, hey, this is the way, right? That's right. That's right. Because, I, you know, the thing is, too, in, in that world, we all know people who, uh, who know every single fact of every Superman comic ever made. So we could never play professor over some of these people. They, they are walking professors themselves. They are libraries of everything they've ever read. They don't need us to tell them that was a great panel. You should remember it. They will remember it for the rest of their lives. What they might need us for is, is you know, like I said, a little uh, prompting or inspiration or the the initial um, uh, mapping of of the the earliest uh, systematic ways we can think seriously about the stuff that we want to think more deeply about. Yeah, 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 yeah. beautifully put. Um, what is a Cheney kind of trademark classroom move? Yeah. I'm glad you asked me that. I'm very proud of my, my, uh, my signature mark. I, I think it's, it's a, a technique I learned, oh, well, I learned from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, there's a moment in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I, I encourage everybody to read this person's autobiography. It's, it's one of the most eye-opening texts I ever read. At one point, he comes right out and says, you know, it'd be a really good way to control the population. Fake news. <laughs> Basically, it's, 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 he sort of says, you know, um, you know, it'd be really great uh, if, if very rich and important people in a town like Philadelphia were to secretly meet and plan everything out and then to make it seem like it was all spontaneous democracy or something. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, really a blueprint for uh, uh, political life kind of in the style of uh, the prince or something like that. Uh, not necessarily the kind of writing I think that that Franklin wanted to have go public. Anyway, long, long story short, in the, in the beginning of this uh, tract, which is basically a tall tale about how great of uh, a genius ben, Fra ben Franklin was, he's, he explains how he learned how to write so well. He says he would get uh, copies of the Tatler and, the, and the, um, the Spectator or something like that. He'd look at the writings of Addison and Steele, and these folks were considered the best writers in England at their time. He'd get like basically a copy of the paper. He'd read the first couple of paragraphs of something they wrote, and then he'd cover up the rest. And then he would try to write the rest himself. After writing the rest himself, and he's 16 years old, by the way, he'd compare the two, the, the original written by, you know, grown-up, well-paid uh, journalists in London, and then the thing written by the confident braggadocio-filled 16-year-old in, in Philadelphia. And he says, by and by, by the time he was 20, he would look at the difference and say, you know, I was, I was all right. Ben Franklin's work is as good as their work. He called this an imitatio. So I basically have students read the paragraphs about the imitatio, and I challenge them in this way. I say, I want you to find uh, a graphic narrative in this class, whether it's by Chris Ware or uh, Linda Berry or somebody like that, and I want you to imitate it. I want you to use something in its style to tell a story of your own like imitate a structure uh, for storytelling that allows you to tell your own story and do it in a way so that other people looking at your comic will immediately know, oh, you're imitating Linda Berry, oh, you're imitating Mark Jane Satrapi, oh, you're imitating, uh, you know, Chris Ware. Uh, and that, that exercise has 
on the one hand produced a whole lot of comic artists who didn't know they were comic artists. Mm. My, uh, my mantra to them is, if you can put googly eyes on a stick figure, you can create Melville's Moby Dick as a comic strip. Uh, on, on the other hand, it creates uh, comic scholars who, who suddenly see storytelling structures in Linda Berry that are not reducible to words, that are not just story type structures that they see in short stories, but that are only really in Linda Berry. Uh, so, so um, that um, imitatio, and, 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 and I, I, I now have twice, 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 once at the beginning of the class, and once at the end of the class. Oh my gosh, oh Frederick, the, the works you uh, put uh, into these imitatios, it's, it's mind blowing. It's really, really incredible. Wow, yeah. I look forward to one day um, having the honor of sitting in on one of your uh, classes, Michael. I'd love that. I'd love that. Um, so, Another, another, there's so much to you and uh, the things that you do, but you also work on political cartoons. Yes, yes. Uh, and, I, and I think that uh, the power of political cartoons, I'm, I'm looking at your caption here, and uh, it, it, it really is always manifestly on display in any political cartoon. What we see here are potentates uh, rendered like children, like infants. And... I mean, this is a standard kind of move. No matter what your politics are, uh, imagine this, that a political cartoon wants to take the head ruler of a state and render that person as a buffoon all the time. Before it's even said anything about that person, we enter a world where the most feared and the most powerful are made most small. Mm. This is an, I, I, the, word, the words that come to mind to me are, are, are all from religion. They all have to do with theological orientations for imagining the divine in mortal terms. And I believe that what you get in editorial cartooning is a, is a, a primitive insistence on democracy uh, that, that uses the grotesque and forms of extreme exaggeration and hyperbole in order to poke holes into the sacred that prevents, I'd say, radical democracy from, from rising. Uh, I believe that every little joke that has ever been uh, drawn of an American president having a big nose or big ears or a big chin uh, is a way of disfiguring the sublime body of the ruler and making that body as flexible and as plastic as the body politic is made to feel in relationship to some more despotic rulers uh, in history. Mm. And of course, course. opening a, a kind of entry for the regular folks to then think about ways of kind of dismantling that power structure, right? That's right. I, what the, In this particular uh, uh, cartoon that you have here, this is uh, uh, by the African cartoonist Gatto. And what I love about Gatto's work, it's really not so easy to see here in this particular image, but the, uh, the mess that's on the floor, these babies have made such a mess trying to just shake each other's hand, you know. At the, at the base of the comic, the detritus on the floor blurs over uh, the, a tiny figure on the bottom right 
that's uh, almost like a plant or like a little tiny shadow figure. Uh, Gatto includes this little shadowy figure at the bottom of almost every one of his comics. It's like a signature. And I, I've theorized it as uh, his objective correlative to the common person who feels crushed by history, but uh, who can also, from that position of being in the gutter of history, laugh at, the, at those who are on the highest pedestals and imagine those pedestals to be nothing more than silly high chairs. Wow. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, again, there's, there's the scholarly and then there's the creative, but in fact, there really isn't a line between these and you as a, as a thinker, creator, so teacher. Tell, tell us a little bit about your alphabetic fiction, your gra graphic class fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been an artist my whole life. Uh, my mother was an artist. My brother's an artist. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I really do see the artwork as of a piece with the uh, critical work I'm doing. Um, so for instance, right now, uh, uh, I'm working with my, my, the person I call my co-artner is Sarah Biggs Cheney, uh, who's a poet primarily. Uh, and we work together and, and that creates a dialectic that's very, very uh, liberating for me because I'm I'm not in charge, you know. I don't. I, I really don't know what we're going to do next. It's I'm only fifty percent of the operation, you know. Uh, but right now, right now, uh, as scholars and intellects, and also as artists who are living in uh, in this great moment, uh, the quarantine, um, we are reflecting, as many uh, are, about the, the the discussion having to do with the masks. Uh, and, you know, we're not doctors or scientists, but as, as scholars and artists of language, we're very curious about the way the, the mask involves uh, a, a reciprocity of intent. I'm wearing a mask, and if you were wearing a mask, sure, we're protecting ourselves, but, you know, the, the, the logic is really reciprocal. It's not I'm wearing the mask to protect myself. I'm wearing a mask to prevent myself from infecting others and there's just it's a complicated relational reasoning why someone is wearing a mask uh so i want i i just want to wrestle with that and one of the uh ways that we're doing that um uh because my 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 co um maker is a poet is what we're working with collages four different collages of just a masked figure and we want to use different kinds of words uh, from different domains and culture to uh, try to represent the, this conflict of why someone would wear uh, a mask. And so we've got a mask figure in the mask area are statements that have to do with me in the uh, area of the, the face or the head are statements that have to do with the not me. And in the background will be statements that have to do with the we. And in one version, we'll take all the statements from, say, Trump tweets, from another, from our Facebook feeds, and then in other domains like this to create a series. Now, the reason why I've just said all of that uh, and why I'm going to spend many hours as a grown-up making collage is because I think there are certain uh, aspects to this mutualism that are going to forever evade articulation with words, especially at this time for me. Mm. And if I'm ever, as a cultural critic or a writer, going to put that big bundle of feelings into words, I, I got I to gotta express it in other ways first. Uh, prior to words, I think are uh, picture languages um, that enable me with words to emote and express the ineffable. 
so that as I get closer to uh, um, um, a, a moment in my thinking where I can articulate the ineffable, I, I won't be a, a you know a, a mess at, at trying to come to terms. Uh, I, I see art as expression. It is literally a coming to terms. What are the terms to explain my reality? Uh, but I, I also am suspicious of language. I don't think the, the terms that can ground us in reality are always terms. I don't think they're always words. I think sometimes they're icons and word pictures. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, one of the kind of arguments of someone like Joe Sacco or, you know, Spiegelman is that it's really the kind of power of the visual that allows for the articulation of something as traumatic as a sort of genocide or war, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, very powerful. Um, the, where, um, where are we, where is comics, what's the, where's the heartbeat of comics and comic studies today for you, Michael? I think it's always in uh, the areas that comics do best. Comics can show and tell. They tell and show at the same time. I, I think the vitality will be in those who have new things to say and new things to show us uh, because they, uh, they have new kinds of lives or their lives have never been spoken of before. And I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I and so many others in comic scholarship are greatly indebted to you, Frederick, for the that kind of work that you do, where you give voice uh, uh, to others who are, are don't have a voice or don't adequately have a voice uh, in their in their culture or their society, I think comics have been uh, a go-to platform for the dispossessed. It is a voice and it is a mode of show and tell for those who uh, whose show and tell have been roundly ignored. Um, so the vitality will always be there. I, do, I, I don't understand and don't like when people talk about underground comics or uh, comics that are gritty and by people as being in the past. That was the 60s or the 90s. or so. No, that's, that's all the time. Um, of course, the other, the other area of vitality um, will always be, I suppose, the vanguard uh, cutting, edge of cutting edge of commercial comics. Uh, if it weren't for that, uh, most of us wouldn't be in it. Uh, most of us poo-poo the commercial stuff, but if it weren't for that, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the global stuff um, that we are aware of, we're only aware of because of the ascendancy of things like manga uh, in the 80s as a commercial giant that it was. Um, I think there's still vitalities in terms of uh, uh, comics from other places in the world. Uh, I'm always amazed when, when I speak to um, uh, comic artists from Africa, many of whom are also scholars uh, and not just cartoonists, that in, in some African cultures and societies, what we think of as a comic is the ballot that is used to vote uh, uh, with. It will be a word and a face and a picture, a series of pictures. Uh, a picture language is used in other parts of the world for so much more than comics. And I think when we start to see uh, American comics and comics in English, let's say, uh, picking up even more from the, this, this global uh, pool of influence, I think we're gonna see even more vitality in the American firm. 
Oh yeah, I hope so. I do. Um, <clears throat> I do. I do. I do. So, Michael Cheney, Dartmouth artist, scholar, uh, beloved teacher. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frederick.